Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, in your mercy, send the Holy Spirit to us now, so that your word is sweet to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouths, and so that we embrace it, we eat it, feed upon it, and live according to its words. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our series in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We've been looking at uh, the rise of David to the throne of Israel, and uh, this falls at a place of church uh, church history and the history of God's people, uh, where there's a real transition happening uh, between the kingdom of Saul uh, to the kingdom of the house of David, the kingdom of Israel being transferred to the house of David. Uh, This actually lands after a significant portion of history has happened upon the earth. Uh, I've been giving a little recap and some of you have been telling me how helpful that is for you as you try and work out where uh, this part of 2 Samuel falls in Israelite history. I mean, you start with the Bible, it starts with the creation of the world and the creation of the first parents, Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, you eventually get Abraham. From Abraham, you get the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 tribes of Israel end up in Egypt and a man called Moses leads them out of their slavery under Pharaoh and into the promised land they go under the leadership of a man called Joshua. There's a series of judges that uh, are used by God to protect his people. And the last of those judges is Samuel. And so we're introduced to him in the book of, in the book of 1 Samuel. And I know a number of you have actually started since we've been reading 2 Samuel. You've been reading 1 Samuel to give you a bit of history as to how uh, this has all come about with the, the work of David uh, that has shown up here in 2 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we get introduced to uh, Samuel himself, the prophet, the great prophet of God, and how he anoints Saul as king over Israel. But then in 1 Samuel, you see that king, the king Saul is not such a good king after all. He does not do what God commands. And so God commands Samuel, the prophet, to anoint another man, David, as king over Israel. And then Saul dies at the hand of the Philistines, the enemies of God. And then there's this transitionary period where you've got a split kingdom, where you've got the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, has taken over the tribes of Israel, except for the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is where David is originally from, and so David is reigning in another part of Israel over the tribe of Judah. And so there's this tension, and there's this civil war that we've been looking at as uh, over the last few weeks between the the tribe of Judah and the other 11 tribes and uh, under Ishbosheth and David with Judah and there's this fight that's been going on and we've been seeing that fight going on particularly with Abner, man who is the commander of uh, Ishbosheth's army, he is the one who's been coming down and fighting against Joab who has been the, the leader of David's army, the commander of David's army. And this is important, I should say, this, this struggle for the house of David to become king because eventually who will ascend the throne of David? It'll be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is actually a very important part of, of church history in the fact that the church depends upon Christ and Christ ultimately is on the throne that is established here by David. And so it's not inconsequential to us as Christians to look at whether David's throne is a legitimate throne, whether he really did ascend the throne of Israel under God's leadership. And, uh, and so that's part of this struggle that we see going on. Uh, and we really see a struggle for the throne of Christ Jesus. And so it's important to bear that in mind. But we've been studying this civil war that's been going on, and last week we saw how there's even a falling out now happening between Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth, the king of Israel's army. Um, Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army. There was a falling out that happened last week, and Abner said some very strong words. He got very angry with Ishbosheth, and he has started to indicate that he will defect 
to David. He will take Israel to David. And he seems to have power over the people of Israel, even though he's just a commander. He's not the king. He is the one who's made Ishbosheth king. But it seems that he thinks that he can take the kingdom of Israel over to the kingdom of David, to, uh, so that David will be king over all of Israel. And what's the first step then of Abner after he said some hostile words to Ishbosheth? He then comes to, Ab- uh, to David and offers David the kingdom of Israel. And we see that in verse 12. Look with me at chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David. Whose land is it? He may be saying that it's David's land, or he may be saying it's his land. Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So Abner, commander of Ishboseth's army, is actually gone over to David and said, I can bring all Israel over to you. He is defecting from Ishbosheth and offering David the kingdom. And David is happy to do this, but he makes an agreement with Abner based on a condition. We read in verse 13, Good, said David, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. David agrees to make a covenant, to make an agreement with Abner, but on the condition that he gets the return of his first wife. His first wife, Michal, who we were introduced to back in 1 Samuel uh, when we studied that or when you've read it previously. Now, why does David want Michal back? Why does David want Michal back? Does he miss his first wife? Well, maybe. But when you consider what we looked at uh, in previous weeks in 2 Samuel, it does appear that David has moved on from Michal. Why would I say that? He's now got six wives. He had Michal, and now he's, and then he married two other wives, and then he's subsequently got another four, and so he's got six wives. If he was pining for Michal and she was the only woman for him, then it's a bit odd that he would have six other wives. Now, why then does he want Michal back? Why does he make it a condition of getting the whole of the kingdom of Israel over to him? Well, there's a, basically a political benefit in him having Michal back. He's wanting to make a number of statements by saying that he will have Michal back by getting the return of her. Firstly, David wants the house of Saul to acknowledge they wronged him in taking away his wife. He was forced out of Israel by Saul, the father of Michal, and they wronged him in doing that. They shouldn't have kept his wife from him. And then, of course, by wanting Michal back, David is showing to the house of Saul that he is favourable to them again, that he's not hostile to being united with the house of Saul, that he wants Michal back in his life, and he'll then be united to her brother, which is Ishbosheth in some way. Also, of course, David wants to remind Israel that he is united to the house of Saul already as a son-in-law. If David is related to the house of Saul, then he has a claim to the throne in some respect. If he is married to the sister of the current king, then he has some claim to the throne. And of course, David wants to remind Israel by getting Michal back that he is a great warrior. Now, how would that be a part of it? Well, he even comments in it. In, when he speaks to Abner, he says, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. And then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. 
How did David get Michal? It was by killing a hundred, well, he actually ended up killing 200 Philistines and earning the right to marry her. It's not every day that you meet someone who can kill 200 other warriors. This man is quite a fighter. And as he reminds all of Israel by getting Michal back and what conditions he got Michal in the first place, he's reminding Israel that he is a fighter. Whereas Ishbosheth, your current king, how many Philistines has he killed? He has no reference to killing any Philistines in the book of 1 or 2 Samuel. And when we look at him in 2 Samuel, he looks rather weak most of the time. He's got Abner doing his killing for him. Whereas David knows how to defend a country from the enemy. He can do it with his bare hands himself. So David, what is he doing by wanting Michal back? He's wanting her for his own political benefit. And so in this passage, we see that David is clearly becoming king, that the transition is now happening. In fact, who's in charge in this passage? We see David is in charge. He's the one who gives charges to Abner. And Abner responds accordingly. He gives a charge to Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, the brother of Michal, and says, I want my wife back. And what does Ishbosheth do? He gives his wife back to him. We see that in uh, verse 15. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, that's Michal, from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. And we see Paltiel obeying this second husband of Michal. When Abner tells him to go back home, what does he do in verse 16? He goes back home. He is crying about the loss of his wife, but Abner obeys David and Paltiel obeys Abner and therefore David gets what he wants. You can see again and again that people are starting to listen to David and do exactly what he wants. So in this passage, we can see very clearly that David is starting to become king. But what else do we see in this passage? We see the abuse of a woman. Very clearly, the abuse of this poor woman, Michal. You can't help feeling sorry for Michal through all of this, particularly once you unpack a bit more about her history. And so I thought it'd be good to focus on her today. Why? Because Michal is a good example of the terrible abuse that people experience from those who are more powerful than them. People who have a greater power over a person can abuse them for their own purposes. Now, who abuses Michal? Well, firstly, her husband, David. How does David abuse her? Well, he married other women. It's not right. A husband shouldn't even be looking at other women, let alone marrying other women if he's already married to someone. The two become one flesh, we learn from Genesis. And so there's not a place for having another wife, let alone six other wives. He's abused Michal by moving on and getting other women rather than trying to get her back earlier. And of course, he's abused Michal for his own political gain. He abused her for the initial marriage, but even ongoing He's now abusing her by wanting political gain. But it's not just Michal who was abused. It wasn't just David who abused Michal. Her her father abused her as well. He used her for his own benefit. Saul was used to abusing his daughters in order to secure his throne. We see that back starting with Goliath. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we know about David and his fight with Goliath, this man who came out, and what was said by the people of Israel as this man, this great man, would come out and defied the army of Israel. The Israelites had been saying to one another, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. Saul abused his daughters. 
He was quite happy to give them away to any man who could defeat Goliath. And did he abuse Michal in this way? Yes, he did. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 20, we see the terms by which David gets Michal as his wife. Turn back with me to page 281. It's just a few pages earlier. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 20. One Samuel chapter eighteen verse twenty, page two eight one, and we'll hear a little bit more about Michal and David and their first interactions with one another, and of course Saul's misuse of Michal. Verse twenty of one Samuel chapter eighteen. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated the words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him him his daughter Michal in marriage. Was Saul interested in giving his daughter to whoever she loved? No, he was interested in giving her to someone who would get rid of one of his enemies. He, he viewed Michal as a trap for David. He hated David. How do I get rid of David? What I need to do is get David to go out into battle and some Philistine will kill him instead. And how will I get him out into battle so a Philistine kills him? Well, I'll promise my daughter to him and so that when he goes out trying to get the dowry, so to speak, he will then be killed in battle. And he tried this previously. If you look back in chapter 18, verse 17, Saul said to David, here is my oldest daughter, Merab, another one of Saul's daughters who he misused. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. He tried it with Merab and now he's doing it with Michal. Saul abused his daughters. He used them what for? For his own political gain, for his security of his own throne. To get rid of enemies, both Philistines and David, people that he was afraid of, Saul abused them. And Saul abused Michal in one sense by giving her away in marriage to another person down the track. That's Paltiel, who we see in 2 Samuel chapter 3, crying as he's losing his wife. Saul had no right to give away his daughter a second time. If she's currently married to David, Saul has no right to say, oh, now you can be the wife of this person. And I'm sure Saul got some benefit from Paltiel for it. There would have been some dowry, some, some condition that he would have placed upon it. He misused his daughter again in marrying her off to someone who couldn't be his wife, uh, couldn't be her husband, because she was already married to David. But Micah wasn't only abused by her husband, David. She wasn't just abused by her father, Saul. Who else abused Micah? Well, Micah was abused by her brother, Ishbosheth, as well. How so? Well... Ishbosheth, the brother of Michal, abused her by using her to appease his enemy. 
and possibly gain political power, just like his dad had used Michal. We see that in verse uh, in, chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, where he is obedient to Saul, uh, to David, and removes Michal from her husband. In verse 15, so Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Now, why would Ishbosheth do that? If David is his enemy, why would he do this? He's hoping that somehow, he's seeing that David's throne is getting stronger, his is getting weaker, and he's hoping that maybe at least David will be favourable to me if I do what he says now. And if I'm connected to him as the brother-in-law, if David ascends the throne and he's the king, and I am his brother-in-law, it's unlikely that he'll probably try and get rid of me. In fact, he may actually let me lead, be a tribal leader, possibly over the tribe of Benjamin, which is his home, uh, is his own tribe, because that's where Saul had come from. You can see how Ishbosheth is just abusing his sister. He's meant to care for his sister, but instead, he's quite happy to give her away to David in order for his own benefit. And of course, who else abused Michal? It wasn't just her husband David. It wasn't just her father Saul. It wasn't just her brother Ishbosheth. We see in this passage that Abner also abuses her. Abner is the commander of the Israelite army. But as soon as David says, I want that girl, what does Abner do? He makes it happen. Even as this, her second husband is weeping at his loss, following her all the way, what does Abner do? He stands up tall and says to that second husband, go home. We see that in verse 16. Her husband, however, went with her. That's uh, Michal's husband, Paltiel, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. And so he went back. What could he do against the commander of a, an army? He's lost his wife. But Abner is quite happy to abuse Michal. Why? Because he will benefit. He is not allowed to go back into the presence of David without her. That's the condition that David made. And Abner wants to make sure that he's on top when David ascends the throne. And so if, he want, if, if David wants some girl, I'll make it happen. I'll use all my authority to do so. And so he's quite happy to abuse Michal as well. So poor Michal through all of this. She's abused by her husband, her father, her brother, and the commander of the army who's meant to be there to protect people, not to abuse them for his own political gain. Now, how is this helpful for us to see today as we study Michal together? How is it helpful for us? Well, people are still abused by those more, than pow more powerful than them. It still happens today. Humanity hasn't changed. Do husbands abuse their wives, using wives for their own personal gain like David did so many years ago? Yes. Husbands will take advantage of their wives and use them for their own personal benefit. What's a good example of this in our day and age where a husband will abuse his wife? Well, it's when they get married and the wife ends up shouldering the burden of raising children and caring for the house. She's, she, she gives up a career that she may have and she focuses on the kids and looks after those children, bears those children to her husband, looks after them well, makes sure that he has food on the table at night when he comes home. She looks after the home very well. And then what does he do? He leaves her. For another woman. And what does that happen? And what happens to that first wife? She's abused. Why? Because she is now left with qualifications who may be very much out of date, skills that are not easy to earn money with. 
She may not have many assets. He may have controlled all a lot of the money and she didn't worry too much about it. She just tapped the credit card when she wanted to buy food and clothing. She doesn't know where the money is. And so what's happened? She's been abused. She's been treated as an unpaid worker for the husband for a decade or two and then left. It's abuse, but it happens in our day and age. It happens all too frequently where women are taken advantage of by those more powerful than them, by those who should be the ones who love them the most, their husbands. But do fathers abuse their daughters for their own advantage, like Saul did so many years ago? Yes, often happens that fathers will take advantage of their children and use them for their own advantage. I got to know one of the local cafe owners a few years ago, and his daughters worked in the cafe, his adult daughters, and he was telling me one day that one of the other store owners in the same shopping centre said, oh, it's so good you've got adult daughters. He said, you can make so much money because you don't have to pay them. And he was shocked. He said, of course I pay my daughters. I pay them the recommended hourly rate. They were also studying at university, but on the weekends they were there working in the cafe. The fact that this other store owner said it shows that there's plenty of store owners out there who use their children to work in the local business, unpaid or with very little pay. And why? For the benefit of the father. The money that he would have paid to the children feeds back into his own bank account. But what about brothers? Do they take advantage of their sisters as well? Yes. For their own benefit? Yes. What's an example in our day and age? I was thinking about this this week when you see sisters who shoulder the whole burden of caring for elderly parents and a brother doesn't contribute at all, doesn't contribute his time, doesn't contribute his money. He lets the other children care, and particularly the sisters. He lets them do that, that work that they should be shouldering as well, of caring for their parents. But what about protectors of the community? Do they take advantage of vulnerable citizens, like we see Abner did with, with Mikhail so many years ago? The answer is yes, that people in positions of authority will often take advantage of those who are weaker. may not be as common in our day, in our nation, but in history it's definitely something that we can see happening again and again. And in Christ's day we see it. In Luke chapter 18, verse 2, he tells a parable and he says, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. The fact that, it is a parable, but the fact that Jesus could tell that parable was something that they, people could relate to and understood that this does happen, that a judge could refuse a widow justice because who is she? She's not going to cause any problems for me. I can take advantage of her and I don't need to bother going through the hard work of giving her justice. So we see it happens today. Those who are vulnerable are abused by husbands, by spouses, by fathers, abused by their brothers and abused by those in positions of authority in society. But what does God think of abuse? What does God think of abuse? Well, God condemns abuse. How do we know? Well, there's explicit laws about taking advantage of those who are vulnerable amongst us. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22 says, Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Why is he single out widows and orphans? Because they are vulnerable. They're weaker. And he says, do not take advantage of them. He's very explicit. But what's all we need to know what God thinks of those who take advantage of those around them? All we need is the golden rule. 
What's the golden rule? Love your neighbour as yourself. What we wouldn't want done to us, we don't do to others. And what we would want people to do for us, we do for others. That's what the golden rule is. Love your neighbour as yourself. So when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 3 and we have the golden rule in our mind, we can make assessment of what's going on there and what God would think. Would David want Michal along with six other husbands? Would he want Michal to bring six husbands with her? He doesn't even want Paltiel. Would he want six other husbands to come with Michal to the marriage? No, he wouldn't. So when he demands Michal come and he's got six other wives, what is that? It's abuse. It's wrong. God doesn't want it. If you don't want it, David, then you shouldn't be doing it to Michal. And when Saul wants to use Michal as bait for the death of his enemy, he should think, would I want Michal to use me as bait for the death of her enemy? Clearly, Saul would have a problem with that. So it's wrong. He's not doing to others as he would have them do to him. And when Ishbosheth wants to marry off Michal in order to appease his enemy and get some political benefit, he should think, would I want Michal to marry me off in order for her to get some benefit? Quite clearly, Ishbosheth would say, no, I don't want that. So then he shouldn't be doing it to Michal. And it's the same with Abner. When he sees what he's doing for Michal, he should ask the question, would I want Michal to force me to go with another woman in order for her benefit? Say no. Then it's clearly wrong. It's abuse. And what does God do with those who abuse? Those around them. God punishes them. That warning that is given to us in Exodus chapter 22, where he says, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan, is followed up with a punishment, if you do. He says in Exodus chapter 22, if you do take advantage of a widow or an orphan, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. God puts it up front and centre what he thinks of abuse and what he will do to those who abuse those around them. And ultimately we understand that the wages of sin is death. And if it is sin to break the golden rule, then it equals death, eternal death, punishment in hell. God takes abuse very, very seriously. Now as we look at this and we start to reflect upon the golden rule, we start to look at David and we start to see Ishbosheth and his behaviour as well, David's behaviour, Ishbosheth, Abner and Saul's, start to realise that haven't we all abused those around us? Haven't we taken advantage of those around us? Have we, haven't we all not loved our neighbour as ourselves? See, as we look at the Bible, one of the things that jumps out at us as we read it carefully is the awful truth. This is why people don't like the Bible, that it condemns us. It points out to us that we are all abusers, that we've all abused others. Now, some, of course, have abused others far worse than we may have done. But sin is all equally sinful. Now, some sin is more harmful, and so some things that some people have done, some abuse that some people have done, is, of course, greater in one sense because of the harm that results. There's a difference between thinking about hitting someone and actually hitting them. 
But nevertheless, the getting angry and the thinking about hitting someone is still sin in itself when we reflect upon what the Bible says. And so what are we to do as we look at David and we look at Ishbosheth and we look at Saul and we look at Abner and we start to see ourselves in them? What are we to do? We're to go to Christ. We go to Christ the King. Why? Because he obtained forgiveness for those who abuse others. For those who repent of their abuse and go to him, he obtained forgiveness for them at the cross. And so as you look at the scriptures here today and you start to feel convicted about the way that you've taken advantage of people who are more vulnerable than you, what should you do? Go to Christ. If you've never done it before, repent of your sins. Repent of your abuse towards others and escape God's punishment for your abuse. And then what does Christ do for us? He not only forgives us of our abuse so we escape God's punishment, but he also helps us so we do not abuse those around us. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that instead of taking advantage of others with our power, we use our power for the benefit of others. He helps us to do what we read in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, where it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. How do we do that when we're so naturally inclined to abuse those around us? Well, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we love our wives and do not be harsh with them. And when it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Christ, if we go to him in repentance, he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us to not embitter our children. And when it says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, if we go to Christ, he'll help us to do that rather than take advantage of those under us. And how else does Christ help us with our abuse of others? Well, by his body, the church. We have in the church elders and members who will help us to love one another and not hurt one another. If you keep hurting others, then I encourage you to get help from your church. Go to the elders, go to other members that you trust and ask them to help you to not take advantage of others, but to love them rather than hurt them. And regularly come amongst the people of God. Increase your fellowship with God's people. If you find yourself taking advantage of others and abusing others, be around those who don't. And it will have a salting effect and help the decay that is in you. But what about all the abuse that we may have received? Christ helps us to stop being abusers. But what about the times that we've been abused? If we're all abusers of others, then that means we've all experienced what it is to be abused by somebody, to be taken advantage of by somebody who's more powerful than us. We're all victims in one sense. We're all survivors of abuse. What do we do? Well, we go to Christ Jesus. All fathers, all husbands, all brothers, all protectors of the state are meant to drive us to Christ. How? by the way that they are a good example for us as to those who are meant to love us in society, but even when they are bad to us, when they take advantage of us, when they use their authority as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as an authority within the state, even when they use that for their own gain, they take advantage of us and abuse us, it's meant to point us to the fact that Christ never does and that he is the only one who is perfect in his love for us. Their bad should lead us to satisfaction in Christ Jesus. That when we read like Psalm 45, which we opened the service with, that talks about the king being enthralled with the beauty of his bride. That is Christ towards us. And as we experience abuse and the scars of abuse, it is meant to point us to Christ and how he will never abuse us. But does Christ really love us as his bride? 
as his child? Is he really the everlasting father, the prince of peace? Is he really a brother to us? Is he really a king and we are his servants and he loves us accordingly? How do we know? By the way that the Bible describes his great act of love for us. What is that? That he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us so that we could be set free from the punishment that we deserve from God for all our abuse. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's the love of Christ as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a king to his people. Christ doesn't abuse vulnerable people with his power. Instead, he uses his power to help his people, to help his bride, to help his children, to help his sisters and brothers. And how will Jesus help us with our abuse? Well, one day he will sweep us off to heaven to be with him and we will never be abused again. And all the scars that we have from the way that people have taken advantage of us instead of helping us will be healed because we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus forever and he will continue to love us and care for us for all of eternity and never abuse us how does christ then help us with the abuse that we've experienced well he is the one who looks after us and cares for us and one day will take us away and how does he care us care for us what's another way that he cares for us well he gives us the means to stop the abuse now he gives the mean, us the means to stop the abuse now how by giving us his church and giving us the authorities within the state. All the governing authorities that we have here in Australia are appointed by Christ, and they're there for our benefit to help us in our time of need, as is the church. Christ's people and the governing authorities can help stop the abuse that you may be experiencing. If you're being abused, I encourage you, get help from Christ's people so that the abuse stops. Get help from the governing authorities so the abuse stops and you can find relief from those who are sinning against you. Now, you may feel sorry for the person and be worried about what will happen to that person if you speak up about the abuse that they're inflicting upon you. But realise it's an act of love to dob in an abuser. Why? Because that person is sinning against the Almighty God and there are strict warnings what happens to those who sin against God. He should not or she should not keep going on in that abusive pattern. It is an act of love for you to stand up against the abuse you're experiencing. Go to the body of Christ that God has given you. Go to the authorities that God has given you. Speak up so that you get relief, but also so that that person stops it, stops hurting you and stops hurting others that may come across their path and that they get the help that they need. So what are we all to do in light of what we've read here in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and, we, and the other parts of Scripture that talk about Michal? What are we all to do? Well, we're to go to Christ the King. Go to Christ the King. Why? He stops us being abusers. He stops us abusing others and gives us healing from our sin and he also stops us from being abused by others. Christ helps us to repent of the abuse that we've done to others and gives us the Holy Spirit so that we enjoy helping others 
rather than hurting others. But he also helps heal the scars of abuse and stops the abuse in our life so that we can rejoice in this world and, of course, looking forward to the time where we'll be swept away from all abuses and taken to heaven itself. So wonderful thing about Christ is that he helps those who've been abused, but he also helps the abusers, which if we look at our own souls, we recognise that we've all done it. I see sometimes the, the work that's written for matters of abuse that go on in society and in churches, the books that I read, and a lot of it is about helping the victims of abuse. And the abusers seem to be this terrible person that's like the devil incarnate and you can't really do much. And, and it doesn't really reflect upon helping that person. But we understand Christ is not like that. Christ has love for both abusers and the abused. And he wants to help both. And we, if we reflect upon our own hearts, we have experienced both as well. We have been abusers and we have abused. But Christ is there to help us with our sin of abuse and also there to help us with the sin of others against us. And so what do we always remember to do whenever we find ourselves abusing others or being abused? Keep going to Christ. His love is there. If we will repent and turn to him of our abuse and if we cling to him to help us with the sin of others, he is there to help us and to love us and care for us. Let's come to him in prayer now. Let's speak to him. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who loves, as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a king. Oh Lord, we come before you and we reflect upon your word and we must confess that we have all abused others. That we've been like David, we've been like Saul, we've been like Ishbosheth, we've been like Abner. That we've treated others not as we would want to be treated. We have not loved our neighbour as ourselves. But we thank you that your blood forgives us of all our abuse and that your love helps us to overcome the abuse that we've experienced. When people have taken advantage of us, we can go to you for help. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us now. Help us not to abuse others, but to help others and help us to rejoice in your love for us now. Now and in heaven. Oh, Lord, it's so wonderful that we have this wonderful hope that we will one day be taken to a place where no one can take advantage of us ever again and where we will experience your love for eternity from you yourself and through your body, your people, for all of eternity in paradise. Oh, Lord, we pray that this would give us hope and joy and help us to overcome the scars that we may have inflicted upon us from others. But, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is unrepentant of their abuse, oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant them repentance now that you would break the cycle and that they would start to live according to your ways and love the neighbour as themselves. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.